Why do bad things happen to good people? If God is in complete control, why is there so much evil in the world? Why are bad leaders allowed to flourish? Keep thinking. We're uh, just coming to the end of a, a preaching series, as you'll know, called None Like Him, and we've been looking at the many attributes of God. Last week, Matthew spoke here about the sovereignty of God, which can be defined as the infinite rule of God, what that looks like and what that means for us. Of course, today is also the second of two weeks of um, our 2020 Building Fund Offering Day. We're taking up an offering today, as we did last week, and will do for some time to come, um, because we believe that it's the right time to uh, rebuild this building and all of our facilities here, and to do some more work at our building at 5.02. I'll say more about that later on, but again, keep that in mind through the course of the morning. Now, my task this morning is to build on this whole concept of sovereignty, and I'm going to do something slightly different this morning. We're just going to canter through a story from the book of Genesis. We're going to canter through the story of Joseph, and uh, we're going to look at how God exercises his sovereignty through the life of just a very ordinary man. Now, in God's sovereignty, we have these two tensions. We have this. God has a plan, and we know how that plan's going to go because he said it in his word. Nothing will thwart that plan. Nothing will change that plan for a minute. It's unchangeable. In his love for humanity, he gives us the ability to make free choices, and he works with and through those free choices to bring about his plan. And we're going to see how that kind of intersects today. So, anyone heard of Joseph? Most of you would have heard of Joseph. What are thoughts? Yeah, what do you, what do you think of when you think of Joseph? Coat, can I hear coats? Yeah. I've got lots of things here, but coats, yeah. So this guy, um, he has one of the most important kind of jobs in one of the most significant kingdoms in, uh, in all of the kind of the story of the Old Testament. His story takes up one-fifth of the book of Genesis, which is not um, inconsiderate, and we remember him for a coat. Right, let's try and kind of help ourselves and unpack that a little bit this morning. Okay, so most of us will know the story. You either would have heard this in the Bible if you're not a Bible reader or not a Christian yet. You may have heard it um, Broadway, West End, something like that. But this is a little Israelite boy who has big dreams. And uh, he's hated by his brothers because his dad gave him a coat. And these same brothers, his brothers, they sell him into slavery. They break the bond between him and his family and his people, they lie to his dad, they tell his dad that he's been killed by a wild animal, and his life gets led on this kind of unimaginable course. So we'll come back to the details of that in just a moment, but I want to look at a passage of Scripture from the end of Joseph's life, in which he kind of summarizes his philosophy on all the things that have happened to him through his life, and all the evil that had done, been done to him by his brothers. And it's a surprising summary statement, but for me, this is probably the single most helpful verse in all of Scripture in terms of understanding the sovereignty of God and how it works in our lives. So the Scripture will come up behind us in a second. We're going to turn to page 57 in the Church Bibles, read from Genesis 50, verses 19. And as we, uh, as we do this, as we look at this verse, I want you to... I want you to keep a finger in your Bibles this morning because everything that we talk about today is going to hang off this verse. 
And I also want you to be thinking, as I talked this morning, about what God's sovereign control over all things means for how we respond to situations. And the obvious outworking of that today will be our dependency on God's sovereign provision as we give of our finances later on to something bigger. Right, should we read together? There's a verse up behind me. Here we go. But Joseph said to them, his brothers, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's an incredibly powerful verse, and we'll look at it a number of times this morning, because it does explore this kind of relationship between the plans of man and the will of God. Am I in the place of God? You brothers, you intended to kill me and separate me from my family and set my life on this unimaginable course. But God, God knew about this. And he allowed this despicable thing, knowing that all along he would use it for good. And the good that he had in mind was the saving of many lives. Okay, let's take a look at the story together. Joseph was the 11th of 12 of Jacob's son. But it says that Jacob favored Joseph, and he made him a coat of many colors from a rich fabric to show his favor towards him. Thank goodness times have changed. If my parents gave me a coat of many colors to show their favor towards me... His brothers were so angry and jealous of him that it says in the Bible that they hated him. And then Joseph, 17 years old, it doesn't exactly help his own cause. First, it basically says that um, he went to his dad behind his brother's back and gave an unfavorable report of how they were looking after the sheep in the field. He was a bit of a tattletale. And then he has these dreams where he essentially sees him rising up above all of his brothers and his dad and then bowing down to him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had that kind of dream probably keep it to myself, but not Joseph. Joseph goes and tells them, hey guys, I've had this dream and you're all going to bow down to me. And of course they say, fantastic Joseph, we can't wait to bow down to you. They don't say that at all. In fact, it says they hated him even more. Now, sometime later, his brothers are a few days walk away. They're grazing the cattle and his dad tells, them, tells him, he says, Joseph, can you go and uh, check on the brothers and bring me back a report. You can kind of see the slow-moving train crash happening already, can't you? So when he's, uh, he goes off and, uh, to report on the brothers, and when his brothers see him from a long way off, they make a plan to kill him. They say, here comes that dreamer, Joseph. Let's kill him. And the oldest brother, Reuben, says, hang on, rather than kill him ourselves, why don't we just chuck him in this waterless pit, this well? That's kind of, just, just chuck him in there. And so... Up comes Joseph, off comes the coat, into the pit he goes. The brothers sit down, it says, this is remarkable, they sit down and they have a meal. So they've just chucked their brother in a pit, and they sit down and have a meal. And while they're having this meal, they see this kind of caravan of slave traders coming their way. And, uh, and Judah, one of the brothers, says, I've got a great idea. Let's not kill him, let's not wait for him to die, let's make some money out of this situation. Let's sell him to these, these slave traders. And so they do that. They sell him to these wandering Midianites, and they go home, and they take the coat with them, and they say, Dad, Joseph's been killed, and uh, he's been eaten by a wild animal. Let's just take a moment to let the horror of that settle in. So you've got Andrew Lloyd Webber singing about this and people prancing about on stage, working this out in the West End, but they killed his brother. Well, they sold, his, they sold their own brother. Think about your own families for a moment. Genesis skips through vast sections of history. It does this in a very matter-of-fact way. But imagine your own brothers and sisters or sons and daughters hating you so much 
that they conspire not just to kill you, but to degrade you even worse, to sell you into slavery. That's an unthinkable evil. Brothers in irritation. Let's kill him. Let's sell him. Let's lie to dad and tell him that he was eaten by a lion. It's truly despicable when you think about it, but it's as accurate an exposition of the sinful heart as we see anywhere in Scripture. Meanwhile, Joseph's with the slave traders, and they travel on to Egypt as they uh, had intended to, and they decide to increase their investments by selling Joseph on. And uh, so they put him up at the slave auction, and as he uh, arrives at the slave block, uh, the highest bid goes to a man called Potiphar. Uh, Potiphar happens to be the captain of the palace guard in Pharaoh's palace. So he has a kind of a, a direct connection with Pharaoh. And it says in Scripture that at this time, the Lord was with Joseph and made him successful in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household. Just consider that for a moment. It says God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. Does he break him out of slavery? Does he send his warring angels to demolish Potiphar's household and teach them a lesson? Does he smite Joseph's brothers? doesn't do any of those things. It says while Joseph is enduring captivity, God is with him, strengthening him, helping him. Start to think about your own life in all of this. Sometimes it feels like we're in captivity, doesn't it? feels like we're in pain. It feels like life isn't working out exactly how we would like it to. And at those times, it maybe feels like God has forgotten us or is punishing us. I can't tell you how many times I've felt that way myself. And there are books and books and books out there kind of outlining what to do when it feels like God isn't near. But God was with Joseph in captivity, giving him strength. That's how he is. He's with us, even in captivity, giving us strength. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is this one in Psalm 23. It says, In the presence of my enemies, you, Lord, prepare a table for me. It's remarkable. Where is God when we're facing enemies, troubles, pain? He's communing with us. He's with us. He's strengthening us. God has not forgotten you if you're struggling today. If part of your experience feels prison-like, God is close. Take heart. The kingdom is at hand. Joseph tells us this. Okay, let's move on in the story now. Joseph, it says, was good-looking and well-built. I brought a model this morning so you can kind of um, imagine exactly what it would have been like. And... Uh, <laughs> never heard so much laughter in a church in my life. <laughs> Potiphar's wife was a woman of loose morals who uh, kept asking Joseph uh, to sleep with her. And of course, Joseph refuses. Joseph, it says in the Bible, says, How can I do such a thing and sin against God? And day after day this happens, and day after day, Joseph resists. Temptation comes to all of us. Temptation came to Joseph. And now here we see Joseph exercising his kind of free choice, his free will. He makes a choice. And his choice is not to succumb to that temptation, but actually there's a sense in which he's made his mind up before that temptation even comes. He says, how can I do such a thing and sin against God? That was his biggest kind of, uh, that was his, his kind of paradigm for dealing with these situations. In my experience in ministry, I think the single biggest factor that uh, I kind of come across where sin takes a hold of someone's life and just rips through it is where someone has made a decision to succumb to temptation. And then they just keep on making that decision, and it becomes a habit and a norm. Joseph had set his heart and kept his vision on this. I will not sin against God. I simply will not do it. Get it in you. Get it in you today. 
There's nothing necessarily even supernatural about that. He just made a choice to stay the course. And again, even in his place of captivity, God was with him. He was strengthening him. But you know the story. Joseph uh, sorry, uh, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of trying to sleep with her, and Potiphar has him thrown into prison for many years. Now, this prison happens to be the exact same place where Pharaoh places his own prisoners. And again, it says God was with him. It doesn't sound like it, does it? But let's read again from Genesis 39:20. Is it going to come up on the screen? Yep, great. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness, and he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. That's remarkable. I was talking to Paul Barnett, one of my co-elders, about this verse the other night. Paul works for the police service. He says, I can't think of a time when one of our jailers has said to one of the well-behaved prisoners, here you go, here's the keys. Look after it. Take care. I'll see you in a while. That's what's going on here. In the presence of my enemies, you, Lord, lay a table for me. God is with Joseph. God is with us. Sometime later, two of uh, Pharaoh's direct um, servants commit an offense. We don't know exactly what that is. And Pharaoh has them thrown into jail. And they end up being imprisoned in the cell there where Joseph's in charge. And Joseph is commanded to oversee them. And um, at some point, these two guys have strange dreams. And they're clearly very troubled by these dreams. And they can't make sense of these dreams. And so Joseph in uh, Genesis 40, verse 8, speaks to them and says, Do not interpretations belong to God? Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And God, it seems, has given Joseph this remarkable ability to interpret dreams. And so these guys tell them their dreams. He interprets them. And he says to them, All I ask, all I ask is that when you're released, remember me to Pharaoh. Remember me to Pharaoh. Because he's done nothing wrong. Remember, up to this point in time, his only crime was to be sold into slavery and falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. We've all been accused falsely at some point in our lives. Ever wanted to gain revenge for that? Someone speaking badly of you even now in the season of life that you're in, your family or work or elsewhere? Even in that place, God is working. He's bringing together those situations and circumstances for your good and to achieve his plan. We know this because in Romans 8.28 it says... Paul writing this thousands of years later. And we know that for those who love God, that's us, he works all things together for good. God is working all things together for good. Let's think about Joseph again. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God meant it for good. Man makes choices, sometimes good ones, sometimes bad ones, but God is always working things together to bring about good in our lives. Nevertheless, Joseph is forgotten about, and uh, another two years pass in prison. And then one day, Pharaoh himself has this really troubling dream. Um, he dreams about seven fat cows standing on the bank of the Nile, and uh, these seven skinny cows come out of the Nile, and they devour the seven fat cows. And it says that this was really troubling to Pharaoh, so much so that he calls together all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. And he asked them to interpret, them, to interpret the dream, and none of them could. Now, this is kind of one of those Genesis time warps that we just skid past. But think about that. 
Pharaoh himself is so troubled by this dream. He's called together all of his advisors. There would have been a lot of travel and time involved in that. And it's not that troubling a dream. And it doesn't seem that difficult a dream to interpret. But none of them can. And Pharaoh goes on being troubled by this. It seems like a bit of a ludicrous situation, really. But let's hear Joseph's words again. Does not interpretation belong to God? Your life, your relationships, the state of the world... Earthquakes, volcanoes, all of these things that cause us to struggle and stumble, a strange dream about cows, a building project that frankly is way beyond our reach in earthly terms, does not all interpretation belong to God. God is doing something through all of these things. He's producing something. He's unfolding his sovereign plan to restore all things in creation and to make us like Jesus so that we can eternally enjoy him and worship him forever. What will our response? What will our free will choice to that be? Anyway, at some stage, someone says, hey, Pharaoh, do you remember when I was in prison? Um, well, there was this guy in there, and he was interpreting dreams, and uh, he really helped me. Why don't we give him a go? And so Pharaoh calls for Joseph. Again, out comes Joseph. Uh, Pharaoh says to him, I hear you can interpret dreams, and Joseph says to Pharaoh, I can't interpret dreams. God interprets dreams. Tell me your dream. And so Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph interprets that there'll be seven years of plenty in the land, represented by the seven fat cows, followed by seven years of famine, followed by the seven skinny cows. And then Joseph, strengthened by God, kind of lays out this unbelievable administrative plan where essentially he says, let's take all the grain that we grow in the fat years and store it up and we'll uh, use it and sell it in the famine years. And he, um, uh, he kind of lays this out to Pharaoh And Pharaoh, in that moment, says, brilliant, great plan. I'm going to elevate you from prisoner in this moment to prime minister. I want you to administrate this plan. And in that second, Pharaoh goes from that point to being second only to Pharaoh in the land. It's it's crazy. So Joseph goes on and he uh, starts uh, building these store cities where uh, grain is stored up and he does it with uh, great proficiency and uh, he administrates the nation through the feast and into the famine. Now, we're going to move a little bit quicker now through the story. During the famine years, the surrounding nations who are all starving, they come to Egypt to buy grain. And it seems that they actually go to Joseph himself. And uh, Joseph sells grain to them, makes a tremendous profit for Pharaoh. And along with these nations who come to Egypt, come Joseph's brothers from Canaan to buy grain as well. Now, as far as they know, Joseph was sold into slavery. And he was probably either in captivity or he was dead. And so when they see Joseph, they don't recognize him. He would, have been, he would have looked like an Egyptian as well at this point. But after months of toing and froing, brothers coming back, buying grain, they go away, they come back and they buy grain. Eventually, at one point, Joseph is just unable to control himself anymore. And he calls out, I'm your brother. Is my father still alive? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine selling your brother into slavery? And then you have to go to him years later and you find out that he's still alive, and he's the prime minister of the most powerful nation on earth, and you're completely dependent on him at this point for your well-being. Can you imagine how scared you'd be? He says, I'm your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was God's plan to send me ahead of you to save lives. What's that? God sent Joseph. He allowed the free choices of man to play out in Joseph's life, and he still worked all things together for the good of those who love him. You sold me into slavery, but it's actually God who sent me here before ahead of you for a purpose. 
Some of you will know I had a little bit of a tricky childhood. I grew up in Johannesburg. My parents separated when I was quite young, and we went through times of feast and times of famine. I've endured all sorts of situations as a child. I've moved school seven times. We lived in three different continents. My primary caregivers were Buddhists and atheists and Jehovah's Witnesses. I think I lived in about 25 different houses by the time I was 18. Why? Why did God allow that? When I first became a Christian, this consumed a large part of my wrestling with God. Why did you allow that to happen? And God gave me a number of insights into those situations, but the main one was this. He showed me that all of these events and situations and circumstances in my life had created in me this kind of sense of need for a savior, a sort of spiritual craving, a need to make, a, make sense of life. He'd used the bad choices and the evil actions of people to work out a good plan for my salvation. Isn't that how God works? Isn't that what he's like? As the story reaches its climax, we uh, come back to the verse that we started with. The brothers are now terrified, as you can imagine. They think that Joseph is going to administer justice for the despicable act of violence that they'd perpetrated against him. And Joseph would be well within his rights to do so. Remember, they ripped him from his family. They hated him. They left him for dead. They ate a meal nearby while he was in a pit. These were not good brothers. They appealed to Joseph and they begged for their lives. And they bow down before him. Remember the dream Joseph had at the start of his life, the brothers bowing down. How does Joseph reply? Again, this climactic verse we've looked at a few times. Joseph weeps. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, yes. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph feeds and cares for his brothers and his father. And this is important. He gives them favorable land in the delta of the Nile in Egypt, a really desirable part where um, you could grow crops and uh, graze your livestock. It's a place called Goshen. Uh, and that's important that they settle in Egypt. We'll see why in just a moment. These men made bad decisions, plans that were designed to bring about evil. That's the only way you can describe what they did to Joseph. It was cold-calculated, premeditated murder, mitigated only by this fact that by not killing him, they could sell him and turn a profit. But Joseph, having been through all that he had, recognizes that through it all, God was working and shifting and moving the pieces around in order to achieve his plan to save many. Where else have we seen that model in Scripture? Jesus betrayed by a friend, sold to the high priest by Judas for 30 bits of silver, ultimately leading him to the cross where the greatest victory was won for us. Man put Jesus to death without cause. God raises him to life for the greatest cause there ever was. Without the cross, we have no hope. Without the deception of Judas, we have no arrest of Jesus. Without the plotting of Herod and Pilate, we have no trial. Without the mob shouting for Jesus' death, we have no crucifixion. Without Christ's death, we have no life. Man's evil plans, God's good intentions accomplished. You see how God works his sovereign plan through and in spite of the actions and decisions of men and women. We're given the ability to make choices because, our, because God our Father places such incredible dignity on us and he longs and desires for us to use those decisions to say yes to him and his ways. Remember Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
Why? Why is that? The very next verse. For those God foreknew, that's us, he also predestined, which is us, to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. He's making us like the son. In captivity, through pain against all the odds, when faced with temptation, in good times and bad times, he's producing character in us that reflects his original plan for us to be like him and to be with him. He's making us like the son. Robert Sproul, the American pastor, says this about the sovereignty of God. He quotes a 13th century proverb, and he says, For want of a nail, the horseshoe is lost. For want of a horseshoe, the horse is lost. For want of a horse, the rider is lost. For want of a rider, the battle is lost. The point being that the outcome of the battle in this scenario can be traced all the way back to one lousy nail. The situation that you find yourself in right now or at any point, as good or as difficult as that may seem, in the sovereignty of God, that could be the nail that God has put in your life and is using. The nail that secures the horseshoe, that steadies the horse and the rider for the greater battle that God is winning in your life now. What was God doing through Joseph's life? Why a coat that caused jealousy? Why 11 brothers and a slave trader? Why Potiphar's wife? Why Pharaoh's dreams? Why a plan to sell grain in famine that saved the lives of the Egyptians? And how does any of that relate to us? Here's Robert Sproul again. This is great. Joseph's father favors Joseph and makes him a coat of many colors. And Joseph struts around in it, telling his brothers, I had this dream where you guys were bowing down in front of me. And they say, that's it. It's enough with this kid. He's got to go. And so they decide to kill him. And it just so happens that when they're trying to get rid of him, just at that second, along come these caravanners on their way to Egypt who are willing to buy Joseph as a slave asset. And so off the Midianites go to Egypt, and as they put Joseph up for sale in the slave block, it just so happens that the winning bid goes to this captain of the guard named Potiphar, who just happens to be closely connected to Pharaoh. And he just happened to be married to a woman who tried to seduce him. And he just so happens to end up in a jail where there just happens to be two convicts directly connected to Pharaoh. And it just so happens that while they're in there, Joseph is interpreting dreams. And it just so happens that one of them gets out and hears that Pharaoh's having nightmares. And it's just good luck for Joseph that someone remembers this guy back in prison who can remember dreams, interpret dreams. And it just so happens that Joseph interprets the dream. He gets out of jail. The famine comes. He becomes prime minister. Many are saved from starvation. The brothers return, they end up settling in Egypt where Joseph ends up giving them the best of the land. And if that had never happened, the Jews would never have established themselves in Egypt. But it just so happens a new pharaoh comes along, one who doesn't know Joseph or his God. He doesn't favor the Jews. He turns them into slave labor to take care of his public building project. And it just so happens one of their women gives birth to a baby. And when the baby's born, an edict is put out across the land to kill the children of the Israelites. And so this mother, not wanting her son to be killed, she makes a little ark out of reeds and pitch. Blessed baby. And she sends him down the river. And as chance would have it, the baby gets caught in the reeds near where, unbelievably, at that moment, Pharaoh's daughter is having a bath. And at that point, having evaded capture all the way down the river, not crying, not being caught, at this moment... The baby cries. And Pharaoh's daughter just happens to develop a heart to raise this child as her own. She calls him Moses. He grows up a prince in Egypt. One day he just happens to get involved in a murder. It was an accident. He didn't mean to murder anyone. 
Someone just happens to spot it. He runs for his life where he just happens to languish in the Midianite desert into his old age. And when he least expects it, one day while he's looking after the sheep, he notices this burning bush and the bush starts to talk to him. And it just happens at this point, God decides to reveal himself to Moses and he gives him the mandate to return to his old home in Egypt where he was a prime minister and say to Pharaoh that I have heard, sorry, where he was a prince, and say to Pharaoh that I've heard the cry of my people, let my people go. What follows, of course, is the greatest redemptive event in the whole history of the Old Testament, the Exodus. God saves his people, makes them into a nation, gives them his law, abides with them, conquers the land, gives them a king, sends them his prophets, and out of all of this, a couple thousand years later, a baby is born in Bethlehem. Now, you can go on and on with this story, but you also have to realize that at some level, you can trace all of this back to one lousy coat of many colors. No coat, no jealousy, no jealousy, no betrayal, no betrayal, no sale into slavery, no trip to Egypt, no Potiphar, no Potiphar's wife, no jail, no dreams, no acquaintance with Pharaoh. He's never elevated to prime minister. The children of Israel never settle in the land. There's never a slavery. There's never an exodus. There's never a nation. There's never the Ten Commandments. There's never the kingdom of God. One nail, one horseshoe, one coat of many colors. So what do we do with all of this? If God is sovereign, which he is, if he is working all things out for the good of those he loves, which he is, if he has a plan, which he does, if that plan is a good plan and ultimately results in the return and establishment of his kingdom, which it does, shouldn't that cast a light on every single situation and circumstance in our lives? Shouldn't that cause us to look at the state of the world and know that in spite of the evil intentions of man, God will work it out. As the late Billy Graham said, I've read the last page of the Bible, it's all going to work out all right. (laughs) In good seasons and bad, in sickness and in health, in seasons of plenty, in times of famine, we're to know that God is and always will be on his throne, in complete control. He's unfolding his plan to save many, to glorify his Son, It's why we sing songs like our God is a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's roaring in power. He's fighting our battles. Whatever you're carrying today, whatever's going on in your life, whatever situation, whatever coat of many colors, whatever nail, surrender it to the sovereignty of God. He is producing something in you and through you in spite of the circumstances Second thing we need to do in response to this. The best way to embody a Godward orientation, to train yourself in God's goodness and sovereignty, is thankfulness. It's a natural function of surrender. Thankfulness is a secret passageway into a room that you can't find any other way. Mark Buchanan, the American pastor, says, it's the wardrobe into Narnia. It allows us to discover the rest and the peace of God, those dimensions of God's world, God's presence, God's character that are always hidden from the thankless. Listen to this sentence. Ingratitude is an eye disease every bit as much as a heart disease. Why is that? Because it only sees flaws and scars and scarcity. Likewise, the God of the thankless is wary, apathetic, suspicious, then indifferent, grubbing about in our domestic trifles one moment, oblivious to our personal catastrophes the next. 
practice being thankful that through all situations and circumstances, God is at work. He's producing something in you through the crucible of all of life's interruptions and struggles and frustrations. Finally, we need to do stuff. The perfect almighty king of all creation has given us a mind and a heart and a free will to make decisions and to carry his name and his glory to the ends of the earth. He's called us into this plan, not because he needs us, but because he wants us, because he loves us. He calls us to make decisions and love our neighbor, not cause them pain and not fire rockets into their country. He calls us to make decisions and orient ourselves, our heart, our minds, our spirits, in his direction to bless his name and love his son and carry the gospel to the ends of the earth in every generation. This is how the sovereignty of God works. This morning, we have an opportunity to partner in mission with one another and with God in how we give to our 2020 vision. As elders and trustees, I mentioned earlier, we feel that God is calling us into this adventure of redesigning and repurposing our facilities in order that we're well set up and sustained for the future so that the gospel is preached and the poor are served and the lost are saved. It's going to take a gargantuan effort of faith. There's a lot of money involved in this project. Just look around this morning. This is a quiet Sunday because of the snow. How are we going to do this? As I said earlier, we have no right in strictly earthly terms to go for this. But we're going to give ourselves to this wholeheartedly because as we give ourselves to this, God sees our sacrifice and he blesses our faithfulness and the sovereign creator of all things will provide what we need at the right time for his plan to be accomplished. It's an audacious plan. We have no right, as I said a couple of times, but as the great missionary Hudson Taylor once said, and I love this, there are three stages to every great work of God. First, it's impossible. Then it's difficult. Then it's done. Jesus says he'll build his church. That's been sovereignly decreed. Nothing's going to change that. But he calls us to action. That's our free choice at play. And that his plan will be achieved and his kingdom will come irrespective. That's sovereignty. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that uh, we've spent the last 10, 11 weeks looking at these just unbelievable attributes that lead us to only one conclusion, that the only rightful place for you is sovereignty. It's on a throne. It's in majesty. Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are faithful. Lord, we thank you that you have a plan, and in spite of the situations and circumstances of our life, you will achieve that plan. Thank you, Lord God, that it says in Scripture that you're returning for your people, that Jesus, you'll return and take up your perfect, pure, spotless bride and we'll live together with you in eternity, worshipping and enjoying you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning as we respond to you now in whichever way we choose to, Lord, that we would have in mind eternity, we'd have in mind sovereignty, we'd have in mind that you are producing something in us. Thank you, King Jesus, that you work all things together for the good of those who love you. Jesus, be glorified this morning, I pray.